So, we are in the epistle of 3rd John. We are in a series currently, 2nd and 3rd John, standing for the truth, and we have concluded 2nd John and have worked our way into 3rd John, and the title that I have for you today as we mosey into the third epistle of John the Apostle is a letter to a friend, a letter to a friend. As it's been with 1st and 2nd John thus far, so it will be with 3rd John. We will take it section by section and line by line to discover what the Word of God has to say to us as Christians in the church of God by the Apostle John specifically. This letter is a mere 219 words in the Greek. It's short, it's not overly long, and in fact, 2 John and 3 John are so similar in vocabulary and content, in length, in language, in style, and in substance, that they're often called the twin epistles. I think you'll agree with this thought as we begin our study, because you will almost immediately hear so much of the verbiage with which you are already so familiar so as it was in 2 John, so it's going to be represented and conveyed here in 3 John. We're going to break this down into a couple of different points, verses 1 through 4. I have three points I'd like to share with you today. So if you're ready, say amen. amen. I'd like to introduce you, first of all, to public recognition. This is found in verse 1. In verse 1, public recognition, we're going to begin by reading the text again. You can look at it with your eyes as I read aloud. The Apostle John begins his letter with this heading, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love, how? In truth. Now, whereas 2 John addressed itself to, quote, the elect lady which we determined to be a reference to a specific church. You may recall that. The letter of 3 John is a little different. It's addressed not to the church at large or a particular church, but to a singular person who's not, whose name is Gaius. So it's a bit more personal. It's a letter to a friend. We don't know for certain who Gaius was. In fact, there are three specific names given to us in the letter of 3 John. Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius, and other than a few suggestive references that we can infer a little bit of information from, we aren't absolutely certain who any of them actually were. Gaius is a name that appears a few times in the New Testament, once in the book of Romans and twice in the book of Acts. It was a fairly common name in the Greco-Roman world. So we don't know specifically who this individual was, but we can determine one thing for certain. One thing we know for certain is this. Gaius was loved by John. Look at your copy of 3 John with your eyes, and I want to point something out to you if you'll follow along with me. Look at verse 1, verse 2. Verse 5 and verse 11. Each of those four verses in this very short epistle begins with the word beloved. We might say loved one. Or in the context of this epistle, we might even be able to say dear friend. This is what John is conveying to Gaius. This is what we can infer about how John feels about this particular man. Gaius, my friend. He says it throughout the epistle, which implies something that I think we would be foolish to miss. John goes so far as to publicly acknowledge Gaius, and this is what he says, looking back at verse 1 again, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now John is recognizing someone who means a lot to him. Someone, John says, that he loves in the truth. Now John's an apostle, so I believe that what he's saying here is not 
only that he loves Gaius, but that Gaius is a solid Christian whom he loves. He's not just a friend, he's a friend in Christ. Church, let me pause here and just say this. Get you a couple of friends in Jesus. There are things that God has blessed us with, things that we are privileged to enjoy this side of glory, and I believe one of them is friendship. If God gives you a couple of friends to get through this life with, you're rich. You are rich. Proverbs 18.26 says, A friend of many companions will come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Friendship is a gift of God. On this side of glory, to be enjoyed by suffering sinners like you and me who every now and then need a friend on whom we can rely. Amen? And here we see this text under the heading of public recognition, namely that John is saying, I love Gaius, not just because he's a friend, but because I love him in the truth, which I believe suggests something to us, namely that Gaius is a pretty solid dude. Gaius is a solid guy. Gaius knows Jesus. Gaius loves Jesus. Gaius represents Jesus to the extent that not just anybody like me or you, but the apostle John says, you know Gaius? Yeah, I know Gaius. Gaius is my friend. What a privilege. What a recognition. Gaius is not, I don't think, just any person but he's a fellow worshiper of Jesus Christ whom John does not hesitate to identify with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, It is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. Think about that, church. Jesus lived in the midst of his his enemies, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer is bringing something to our attention, namely that fellowship with other Christians is an incredible blessing that we should not take for granted. In the same book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer continues, and he says later, not what a man is in himself as a Christian, his spirituality and piety, constitutes the basis of our community. What determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Jesus. Our community, whose community? Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for both of us. Did you get that? When you come to First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge and you say, This is the best preaching I've ever heard in my life. To the extent that people faint while I preach. (laughs) That's how good it is. (laughs) You are here, and I am here, in the fellowship of the tenets that we believe to be the biblical foundation of Christianity. Not because of who we are but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. When we come together, we come together not because we've had a great week. I had a bad week. Not because we had an amazing, successful effort at another aspect of godliness. Well, sometimes we fail miserably, amen? Sometimes we set out and we say... This week, Lord, I know I dropped the ball last week, but this week, this is the week, Jesus. Here I come. And then Sunday comes, we go, yeah, yeah, I'm here again. But this is what it's about, not how successful you and I are, but say amen if you're listening. How successful Jesus was on our behalf. We come together, not because we're great, but because he's great. Not because we're good, but because he's good. Not because our works are sufficient to bring us into the company of God, but because his work is sufficient to bring us into the company of God. So sometimes we rub up against each other and we go, I don't like you that much. But that's bad theology. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying our community consists in what it does 
Because Jesus did for you, Al, what he did for me. There are some people that I could not do what I do without. My wife is one of them. I could not do what I do without my wife. Yeah, hang on, I'm I'm cashing chips in here. Give me a second. (laughs) I could not do what I do without Patty, who I call mom half the time, by the way. I could not do what I do without the deacons in our church. I could not do what I do without people like Jan Kaiser who says, I will always be ready to serve. I could not do what I do without the fellowship that God has placed around me and around you. And I would be foolish to try to name everybody because I can't and somebody will say, you forgot me. But you get the gist, amen? You get the idea, namely, that we are who we are, not because I'm an extraordinary pastor or you're an extraordinary church member, but because by the love and grace of God, we're in this together. We're doing this together. And it would be foolish of you and of me to not take occasion every now and then and follow the example of the Apostle John and publicly recognize somebody without whom your life would be different. We all want recognition. We all want praise. We all want appreciation. And certainly there isn't anything wrong with that. But are we doing it to the grace and glory of God? Are we doing it for the good of others? Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. That's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, when we feel like we are in a position of receiving, when we believe that we are in a position that should be posturing us for gratitude and acknowledgement, and we don't get it, then we kind of say, hey, I don't know if you saw this the other day, but I, I, I had a good day. But if we were serving each other the way that God calls us to serve each other, we wouldn't have to congratulate ourselves because our brothers and sisters in Christ would be doing it for us. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Something to think about. The scriptures teach us here in 3 John verse 1 that public recognition is an important part of our faith. But in addition to public recognition, we see also public prayer. This is the second point that I want you to see in our text today. Verse 1 reads like this. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Verse 2. Beloved, loved one, I pray that all may go well. How much? All may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I want to pause there and look at a few different aspects of verse 2 because I think there's some material here that if we were to gloss over, it would be to our detriment. Verse 2 again, John says, Beloved, loved one, dear friend, my friend, I pray, John is saying here that he is praying, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, it would be wise of us to pick this part, as I mentioned, and glean a few lessons. So I want to share with you three things that I see here in this verse, verse 2. First, there's a prayer for his general well-being. John is praying, first of all, for Gaius's general well-being. You can see this in the beginning of verse 2, where John says that he prays, quote, that all may go well with you. You see that? He doesn't say anything in particular at this point. This is a general prayer. I pray that how much? All may go well with you. This is a word that is sometimes translated to prosper. 
It's also used, to, for example, to, to wish someone well when they're on a journey. I hope, I hope it goes well with you. I hope you prosper on your journey. I say all of that to say this. I think John is wishing, in general, that Gaius has a good life. That Gaius has, metaphorically speaking, a good journey in his faith and a good journey with his church, a prosperous journey, if you will. I don't think it's wrong to pray that someone prospers, by the way. I think it's wrong to say that if you want a million dollars, just ask God and believe it and believe it with all your heart and say it with faith and say it, and when you say it, believe it you'll get a million dollars. This is not taught to us in the scriptures. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to go from the Bible cover to cover and find a promise that says, if you pray in faith, God will make you rich. That's television Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. In fact, when we go through biblical Christianity, we see that God does bless some people financially. Unquestionably, God has decided in his wisdom and in his providence to bless certain people financially. No question about it. But the majority of the people that we see are working hard and living a basic life. That's something that you and I have to come to terms with. We should pray for our well-being. We should pray for the well-being of others. But we've got to realize and appreciate that we're not naming it and claiming it. This is not a word of faith movement. This is a biblical paradigm that teaches us that we ought to pray for others' well-being with the understanding that ultimately we may not get what we ask for if it's outside the will of God. But here... We see a prayer being offered by John on the behalf of Gaius that his life is prosperous, that his journey, as it were, is prosperous, that everything in his life goes well with you. Listen, don't hesitate to put your hand on somebody's shoulder and say, I'm praying for you. I hope everything goes well with you. That's not a wrong prayer, by the way. And those prayers, I think this is, it's important for me to say this, those prayers don't add up to anything in your gut. If you're praying for me and you don't say so, it does me no good. Does that make sense? Let people know that you're praying for them. He, he doesn't hesitate to say, I'm praying for you, man. I'm praying that things go well with you. Secondly, I want you to note this. He prays for his physical well-being. He doesn't only pray for his general well-being, but secondly, he prays for his physical well-being. He says, namely, that you may be in, look at it, good health. So first of all, the prayer that we see is a prayer for a general blessing. I pray that God just richly blesses your life. However God decides, I pray that you are prosperous. Secondly, I pray that you're in good health. Who wouldn't want that, right? There are some in our church today who are dealing with health issues who would say right now under their breath or out loud, amen, when it comes to health issues. I've had this issue nagging me for months or years, and I can tell you, be grateful for your health. Be grateful for the blessings that God has given you. We all should be grateful for such things, and we shouldn't hesitate to pray for these things. We live, you and I, we live physical lives, don't we? And it's normal for us to pray for our physical well-being. There's nothing wrong to pray for your physical well-being, as John does here for Gaius. Even our Lord taught us to pray for our physical well-being in the Lord's Prayer when he taught us to pray Give us this day our daily bread. That is Jesus teaching us that it is right and it is good to rely upon our Heavenly Father for our physical needs. It's not wrong to pray for physical well-being. It's not wrong to pray for physical ailments or difficulties. We should pray for God, or to God, excuse me, for all of these things. But... Having said that, I do want to say this. Say amen if you're listening. It would be foolish of you and me to mistreat or neglect our bodies and then pray for health. This is not how it works. 
You and I have been called and designed by God to use our brains and our responsibility to fulfill the life he's called us to live. Now, if we make bad decisions, poor decisions, neglectful decisions, and then pray to God to fix all of those things, doesn't mean he isn't merciful. It doesn't mean he isn't gracious. But what it does mean is that we're being careless with the life that he's entrusted to us. God very, very well may heal us, bring us back into a place of health physically. God may meet those physical needs that we have even though we refuse to work or quit a job before we find another one. God may provide us with that daily bread. God may provide us with the physical needs that we need even though we've neglected our body over months or years or a period of time. But ultimately, guys, this is our responsibility. God has given to us minds to use, wills to exercise, and we should be caring for our bodies and, and not neglecting them and then asking God to rectify all of our wrongs. Instead, we should be living lives that acknowledge, listen to me, the importance of our health. I'm going to say this to you, and I hope you'll receive it. Your inability to be healthy handicaps more than your body. It also handicaps your ability to serve Christ. If you are unhealthy, you cannot bring glory to God through service. If you are unhealthy, you cannot serve and minister to others. Health is an important part of our faith. Let me make some suggestions to you on that note. I believe that there are some things that we should be doing on a regular basis. And if we do, then we should be physically healthy. They're going to come up here on the screen, I think. The first is exercise. We should be exercising on a regular basis. Now, we have cars, we have air conditioning, we have so many things that fall into our favor. But the apostles, Jesus, in ancient times, they didn't get in their car and go anywhere. They walked everywhere. We take for granted what was a part of everyday life in ancient times. If you want to be healthy, you need to exercise. A stationary body is a body that's in decline. Let me say that again. A stationary body is a body that's in decline. You can't sit at home and binge on a TV show and then get up and then the ankle pops and the knee hurts and go, I don't know what's going on with me. I can tell you what's going on with you. You're not moving. You got to move. You got to move with regularity. You got to move with purpose. Here's another thing. Get fresh air and sunshine. Listen, God did not make us for air conditioning and fluorescent lights. God made our bodies to breathe air and to get vitamin D. I was joking with Cassandra earlier. She has sun. Some of us get so pale. It's like we're hiding in a cave or something. Sit outside and get sun. God did not put us on this particular rock in one galaxy among a billion galaxies with the sun, the perfect distance from our planet that, that is wrapped in an atmosphere that protects us. Church, this is by design. Enjoy the sun. Go outside. You don't need more air conditioning. You need less air conditioning. You go outside. It's hot. Yeah, God gave you sweat pores. He didn't give pigs sweat pores. He gave you sweat pores. Go outside and sweat. This is part of what being healthy is about. Exercise. And we, even when you don't have to exercise, take your coffee outside. Go outside and breathe fresh air while you drink your coffee. Black. Don't put all that other stuff in it. Right, Patty? If you come to our office and look for a good cup of coffee, which we have, you'll have a hard time looking for cream because we drink it the way that God intended coffee to be imbibbed. <laughs> Go outside. 
Breathe. Take some deep breaths in God's environment. Enjoy the warmth of the sun. While you're out there, pray, God, thank you for this beautiful creation. God, forgive me for neglecting the outdoors. Lord, help me to build into my practice some time outside to be with you in nature. This is part of what healthy people do. Staying inside, only in air conditioning, only under these fluorescent lights is not healthy for us. This is not what God has called us to. This is not what God designed our bodies for. Sitting for eight and 10 hours a day under these lights and air conditioning. This is not healthy, guys. We need to exercise. We need to get air. We need to get sunshine. Here's the third thing. We need to put away the simple carbohydrates and the sugar. I ate so many cookies on Friday. My head was spinning because Patty got me double stuffed Oreos. I'm sorry? Too far. I I don't know how many I ate, but it was enough to make my head spin and my teeth hurt. I regretted it. I regret it. It's one of those things, yeah, I overdid it, you know? I'm sure you've been there. I I was there. But here's the deal. I love stuff like this. I like to get the double-stuffed Oreos and a mug with milk and a fork and just put the like two Oreos at a time in there. Just let them sit for a minute. I put the fork on top and let it weigh down the Oreos so they get evenly. Listen, you don't have to like my issues. These are my issues. But I'm telling you this because you need to know where I'm coming from. Are you listening? I love sweets. And I love carbs. But I can't do that. And I'm 45 now. I'm halfway to my burial. I can't do this like I used to. I can't do this. Like, if I'm strong, I'll make it to 80, right? If I'm strong. So I've got to discipline myself. So Sarah goes the other day to, what is this place? Crumbles? Crumble. It's a new cookie place or something. $100 cookies. And they have all these weird flavors and toppings. And we had the, the one that we liked the best was chunky, oh wait, pumpkin chunky chocolate chip. That was super good. Super good. Okay. And then, okay, so this was, was this yesterday? So I had, I had Friday, which I overdid it on Friday. And then yesterday, which, you know, you pay $100 a cookie, you have to eat some. Okay. So I fell off the wagon. All right? I'm telling you this so you can know I, I, I have to work hard at denying the flesh and saying no to these sugars. It's hard. It's hard, but it's reality. Sugar is poison. It will go to your joints. It will go to your muscles. And especially for you and me, fellas, it will go to our center area. And the bigger the center area goes, the larger our estrogen level is. It eats our testosterone and our masculinity is compromised. I know you feel like I just took a very serious turn there, but I'm dead serious. Our country's diet is designed to put you on pills. We should be lifting We should be walking. We should be sweating. We should be doing anything and everything in our power, listen to me, fellas, to not be on blood pressure medication, to not have to take a tea supplement, to not have to take anything for our cholesterol. Well, you're at the high end of the window. I don't care. I'm going to eat meat. We have to live our lives like we want to live our lives. Not like we're just wasting away and we're going to let the world just gnaw away at us. McDonald's, 1,500 calories for one meal and $30. What is going on? The world is killing us because if we're weak, If we're weak, then we can't be the influence that Christ has called us to be in the world. And this is, in my humble opinion, part of what's wrong 
We have lost all definition of masculinity and femininity. Why? Because we eat garbage and we fail to exercise. You and I are responsible for the bodies that God has given us. So think about these things. Exercise. Get fresh air. Go outside. Eat good food. And then pay attention to your hygiene. Pay attention to your hygiene. I know it's 2022, but, but what I'm saying is this. In the Bible, it says we should shower regularly and wear clean clothes. This is in the Bible. Listen, Ecclesiastes 9.8. Let your garments always be white and your head never be lacking of oil. That's an ancient way of saying, take a shower and wash your clothes. There are some things that are fixed by soap and hot water. I don't know why it's this way. It just is. You have a hard day. You come home. Don't plop on the couch and open the double stuff Oreos. Go take a hot shower. It is amazing what a hot shower will do. These are principles that are found in the scriptures, guys. Many of them are assumed because our lifestyle is very sedentary. We sit all the time. We sit. Even when we go somewhere, we've been in the car for five hours. We go, where can I sit? The reality of the matter is, is we are debilitating our bodies. We are weakening our bodies. When God has called us to fight the good fight and to be strong, we can't do those things if we're weak. Well, first thing we see is that John prays for the general well-being of Gaius. The second thing we see is that John prays for the physical well-being of Gaius. All right? Now that I've made everybody feel out of shape and everybody's like, okay, I'm going home and I'm hitting the treadmill. Outside. Here's the last thing. The third thing. There's a prayer for his mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 says, say amen when you're there. I want you to see this. Amen? amen? I pray that all may go well with you. General well-being. And that you may be in good health. Number two, physical well-being. As it goes well with your soul. Third, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. You see, in the Bible, church, health is a complete concept. It's a complete concept. We are either healthy or not. And it's unjustifiable when we claim to be healthy in one area of our life when we are convincingly unhealthy in another area. So John says, I pray for general health, physical health, and spiritual health. As God's creation, we should be aiming to live our lives in a way that honors God physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's what the Bible means when it says soul. Every aspect of that immaterial part of our personhood that part of our personhood that we can't necessarily place our finger on. We have to be emotionally and spiritually healthy just as we need to be physically healthy. One of the ways that we can protect our souls and our minds is by monitoring what we read, what we watch, whether it's entertainment on television or whether it's entertainment online. The internet is an amazing tool. Amen? The internet is an amazing tool. I, I know some of you are my age or a little older, and, and I, I'm sure you recall when your teacher sent you home with a book report, you looking for that stupid volume of the world book that you loaned to somebody and never got back. You're looking for the AR to A's. <laughs> That's the one I need. I'm supposed to write a book report on armadillos. We had to go through the world book. 
Today, the internet is so amazing, we get 10 times as much information in a third of the effort. Such an extraordinary tool. But the internet is compromising your brain. The internet is making you weak cognitively. The statistics show this time and time again. Our brains are being weakened by the amount of time we spend on the internet. We no longer think slowly. We no, we no longer talk in detail or extensively. And we no longer experience personally. We watch people do the things that we would like to do rather than doing them ourselves. This is weird. Now we speed. With speed, we've lost quality. We do things so fast in such a hurry that now we're always talking about quantity rather than quality when quality is key. We don't talk except through text or email, and the majority of young people experience life through other people's experiences online. And what's worse, they think they're experts at 16 or 17 years old about all things, by the way, all things. And I have no problem with a little bit of you know, pride in a young person. You know, if you, if you are not a little arrogant when you're young, something's not right. And if you're still arrogant when you're older, something's not right. But the truth of the matter is, we are being deceived by the amount of online content we are taking in. In his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Your Brain, Nicholas Carr makes a few comments, and I put them on the screen so that you could read them with your eyes. The first is this, the net is making us smarter. Only if we define intelligence by the net's own standards. If we take a broader and more traditional view of intelligence, if we think about the depth of our thought rather than its speed, we have to come to a different and considerably darker conclusion. I don't know that we would disagree with this quote. Here's another one, a little longer. You can read it with your eyes again in another place in the same book. Nicholas Carr writes this, the information following, oh, excuse me, the information flowing into our working memory at any given moment is called our cognitive load. When the load exceeds our mind's ability to store and process the information, we are unable to retain the information or to draw connections with the information already stored in our long-term memory. We can't translate the new information into schemas, organized portions. Our ability to learn suffers, and our understanding remains shallow because our ability to maintain our attention also depends on our working memory. We have to remember what it is we are concentrating on. As Dorkel Klingberg says, a high cognitive load amplifies the distractedness we experience. When our brain is overtaxed, we find distractions more distracting. Experiments indicate that as we reach the limits of our working memory, it becomes harder to distinguish, get this, it becomes harder to distinguish relevant information from irrelevant information, signal from noise. We become mindless consumers of data. I just called you out. Some of you do not know why you've been on the phone for two hours. You don't even know what you've looked at the last two hours because this is what the internet does to your brain. It handicaps your ability to exercise critical thinking, to be analytical, to process. 
you are being trained by the internet to think very shallow about all things. And what's more, to receive what's being given to you quickly rather than receiving something and thinking about it over a period of time. Now, we have many teachers here, and I know if I were to ask each and every one of you, you would say, yeah, we see that. We see that in the classroom. Studies just came out as a result of our pandemic and our lockdown and all this nonsense that these crazy people in our government are currently deciding for us, and the percentage of decline for math and reading comprehension in all demographics is startling. And it isn't happening to this class, but not this class, or this gender, and not that gender, or this socioeconomic status, and not this socioeconomic status. Everyone has declined in comprehension, and everyone has declined in math. Now, I'm going to say something to you, and this is going to hurt your feelings, but I'm only saying it to you because I love you. Your teachers are not responsible for your kids' education. You better start parenting. You better start parenting your kids because your kids' teachers are not responsible for your your kids' education. They are here to come alongside your family, to lead them through the curriculum, and to instill in them habits that will help them get through life. But if they manage to get through the day, and they go home, and you're unapproachable, inaccessible, do not help with the homework. Do not tell them, if you get a good grade, we'll do this. If you don't practice positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, bring home another grade like this, you lose that. Whatever the situation might be, if those things aren't happening at home, it doesn't matter if they spend 100 hours a day at school because all they're doing is managing their way through it. And then in 10 years, they're going to manage their way through a job. And then in a couple years after that, they're just going to manage their way through a marriage. And then a couple years after that, they're just going to manage their way through parenthood. And then you're going to get what we've got right now, which is a bunch of people who can't even decide if they're boys or girls. We have failed. We have failed. In the name to be polite, the church has stopped speaking. In an aim to be considerate of everyone's feelings, we have neglected the feelings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have to hold people down and threat them, threaten them with at knife point, believe Jesus or I will not help you. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is standing, as we're talking about on Wednesday night, standing with the armor of God on us and fighting the fight that God's called us to fight. We're losing our brains. And here we see John pray that God will do something in Gaius' life in general, physically, and emotionally and spiritually. You and I are responsible for how healthy we are. Now, this is why it takes a couple of days for you and me to decompress when we leave work. You know, we leave work and we go on vacation. Right when we start to feel better, we got to go back home. This is why it happens. Because our brains have been trained through daily repetition to think so shallowly about so much so fast that we leave for Naples on Friday and on Sunday night are coming back for Naples and are just saying, oh man, I was just starting to wind down. It's amazing how creative we become after a couple of days away from a phone. It's amazing how clear-headed we become after a few days away from a phone. I would say you don't have to be on your phone, but the hours on the phone are not there because we're going and we're coming and we're doing this and we're eating and we're sitting on the beach and we're talking about different things, which is what we don't do on a regular basis. And that space, say amen if you're listening, that space in our life is what we call margin. If you look at your Bible on the edges of your pages, 
There is no text, and this is what we call margin. Some of you have zero margin in your life. You have no buffer. You have no space. The text is your life, and the text runs from edge to edge, and you can't figure out why you're physically miserable, spiritually miserable, emotionally dissatisfied, sexually, forget about it. It affects every single aspect of our life when we run our lives at an RPM that God never intended for us to operate at. The world wants you to keep going, and God is telling you, be still and know that I am God. Some of you need to build some margin back into your life. It might be your lunch hour. You might need to take your, you know, boar's head, ham, and cheese sandwich to a park and sit there without your phone, leave the phone over there or in the car or whatever, and sit outside and just listen to the birds, feel the breeze, eat your sandwich, mumble a prayer, and just spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes putting margin back in your brain, back into your spirit. Some of you need to leave work, and instead of going straight home, you need to call and say, I'm going to go to Black Point for 30 minutes, and I'm going to watch the boats. Some of you need to come home and say, I'm home, but I'm turning around. I'm, I'm changing my clothes. I'm going to the gym, or I'm going to go outside, and I'm going to walk and put some margin back in your, back in your life. God wants us to be deliberate and intentional about our health. Of course, it's nice to pray for each other. Of course, it's nice to pray for ourselves in regards to these things, but we must take responsibility for the bodies, the minds, and the souls that God has given to us. Finally, and this is not very long. I know we're moving along here. Thirdly, we see public recognition, public prayer, and finally, public praise. This is found in verses 3 and 4. If you'll look at it quickly, I'll read it. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and they testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy, by the way, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's always nice to get a public compliment. Amen? And this is the case here. The public compliment comes in the form of recognition. John recognizes Gaius is walking in the truth. You know how John feels about truth. We've been over this theme over and over and over again numerous times. A couple of verses are going to come up on the screen here. We've seen them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 Little children, love not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. 2 John chapter 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. So this idea of truth, this idea of love, are these two ideas, they're, they're closely connected. There isn't a need, I don't think, to recover this ground, but I do want you to appreciate this, namely... That God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. Let's not forget the context. John is writing to a church, but in particular, a leader of a church. His name is Gaius, and he's not talking to him about outward appearances. He's talking to him about the things that can't really be seen. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. Or to say it another way, God doesn't judge like we judge. Or to say it another way still, while there are many things that impress us and convince us of success, God is looking for faithfulness. John doesn't mention the outward things that typically garner people's opinion and praise and recognition how many are in attendance at the church, how the midweek Bible study is going, the size or location of their buildings, the worship band's prowess, the extracurricular stuff that's offered by the ministry, yada, yada, yada. These are external things that, that garner our attention, but the real truth is God is looking for faithfulness. And John says, 
I'm recognizing this. You're walking in the truth. And that brings John joy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Truth is the bedrock of our conviction and faith. Let me say that again. Truth is the bedrock of our conviction and faith. The truth of God, the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. Without a firm and steady grip on the truth of God, we will unravel and eventually find ourselves wrapped in sentimentalism. True love flows from the heart. That's true, but it's understood in the head. When we dislocate the heart from the head, we get sentimentalism. When we dislocate the head from the heart, we get cold judgmentalism. Our faith is a total faith because it impacts both the head and the heart, the total person. That we experience the joy of knowing that we are God's children. In our hearts, we experience it. God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. But we experience that because we know the truth, which is, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. In other words, real love isn't something that is merely convenient, private, secret, but it's something that truly is, through thick and thin, public something we share together as the family of Christ and something that affects both our head and our heart. To close, let me say this. As Christians, we should have no reason to feel ashamed or embarrassed or even hesitant about our love and our friendships. John gives us an example here and how he demonstrates these things toward Gaius. We should recognize, we should pray, and we should praise those people who are in our lives 